Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Research that resonates. Schweitzer has not been wrong on any of his years and years of reporting on the Bidens. Investigations that matter. If your last name wasn't Biden, do you think you would have been asked to be on the board of Burisma? I don't know. I don't know. Probably not. But that's, you know, I, I don't think that there's a lot of things that would have happened in my life that, uh, that if my last name wasn't Biden. The only entities, the only people that would report on this, and Peter Schweitzer, who deserves a Medal of Freedom, in my view. This is The Drill Down with Peter Schweitzer. Hi, I'm Peter Schweitzer, and welcome to The Drill Down, where we relentlessly expose cronyism, corruption, and the abuse of power. Seated next to me, as always, is co-host Eric Eggers. Eric, good to see you. Good to see you, Peter, on this big, momentous podcast occasion. That's right. And you, let me just make clear for the audience, I have lived in Florida for 20-something years. You're a lifetime resident, right? That's correct, yeah. Yeah, so when people think of Florida, they think of all these uh, animals or the wildlife that creeps them out. They think about snakes or they think about gators. For me personally, the thing that, that creeps me out more than anything are rats. And rats, of course, are everywhere, not just Florida. But I was reading this new study, which actually does relate to what we're going to be talking about in the segment, believe it or not. If you wonder what best-selling authors do in their free time, they just peruse biological journals about uh, you know updates on rat behavior. That's right, especially when you're obsessively hateful of, of rats. He's, he's, uh, hate, he's hate-scrolling rat Twitter oh, feed. Oh, dude, dude. Rats, rats creep me out more than I mean, I don't... Snakes and gators, I'm not not really in favor of, but uh, rats really get to me. Uh, And a new study that comes out about how resilient rats are because of their adaptability. Uh, So they've discovered that rats have learned to swim. They can now tread water for three days. How creepy is that? So you think you've drowned a rat? No, no, no. He's just swimming around for three days. He'll be fine. Uh, They can fall 50 feet uninjured and they can squeeze through spaces the size of a quarter you know how large a quarter i mean that's that's a small they can actually squeeze through those spaces and the key thing to their thriving and surviving even with people trying to kill them stomp on them things trying to eat them is the fact that they are adaptable and they adjust to their environment i just want to know what kind of like sadist scientists are sitting there making a rat swim for three days in a row like how does that study get sanctioned by any sort of governing (laughs) entity hey you know we're gonna do hey take it to 50 stories then drop the rat yeah yeah that's i'm wondering where the uh the uh you know animal cruelty uh, uh, rights groups are on those studies. I don't think anybody's objecting. I have no problem if you drop a rat from 50 feet. But here's the, here's the thing. The adaptability is important, and it brings us to a very important subject today, which is 
where corruption is going and how corruption has changed over the course of the last decade. Oh, so the whole rat thing was really just a metaphor to say that corruption and potentially corruption within members of Congress is also quite adaptable. You, you were you were an English lit major, correct? Yes, sir. Yes. Yeah, so you picked up on, picked up on the themes. You you did very I, very I well. I can talk about the human condition too and the <laughs> profundity of it if you'd like. <laughs> is there going to be some Ernest Hemingway reference here, just sort of randomly thrown in? No, but I will just speak in very clipped sentences. That, so. that, that's that's right. Uh, but. So here's the thing. Um, corruption is changing and evolving all the time. Uh, we alert, we bring up uh, evidence of corruption and how widespread it is. Laws are changed and the political class, like these rats, figures out ways to adapt and adjust. And that's what we're going to talk about today because this is actually what? This is the 10th anniversary of the Government Accountability Institute, the end of this month, the beginning of next month. GAI, the organization that you started has been in existence for 10 plus years. We, we have survived. We've actually met payroll and you were one of my first hires, Absolutely. which was, which was a, a great decision on my part. I was a little nervous at first because we knew each other a little bit, but um, that's I, why you were nervous. Yeah, that makes total sense. <laughs> By the way, it's been pointed out to me that the 10th anniversary is known as the tin anniversary which raises a question to me. How does anybody stay married for 20 plus years? If you're giving junk presents like tin on the 10th anniversary, how does it like who's sticking around? And by that? the way, I'm just going to go out on a limb and declare that the one who said that uh, the 10th anniversary is tin was a guy. It was not, <laughs> it was right. not a lady, uh, but we're going to talk today about how it is changing and evolving. Part of it is sort of going a little bit down memory lane, but mm -hmm. with a purpose. And the purpose is to understand what is going on in corruption. And the theme today is, is going to be that it has actually become more insidious than it used to, and it's become harder to detect because they've developed these tactics and these strategies, much like the rats who are learning to swim longer and learning to, I guess, fly and not die when they fall from 50 feet. The political class is learning how to adjust and modify their own behavior uh, in order to survive and thrive. And actually, by looking at the investigations that we've conducted here at the Government Accountability Institute and some of the reporting that's been done based on those investigations, we actually can see a pretty clear line. There's a trend and there's an evolution. And I think it's it's really fascinating. That's right. So the first story that we really um, put on the national agenda was the insider trading on the stock market. And that was years ago. So I was like, the first time I made national news, <laughs> I wrote a it book. It wasn't the first time. It wasn't the first time. <laughs> but in all seriousness, the first thing we exposed was insider trading on the stock market. And this is pretty clear cut 101 corruption, right? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's basically tied up with the idea that I'm going to trade stocks. I'm going to introduce legislation. I'm going to vote against legislation uh, and I'm going to trade stocks and make money on it and you can't do anything about it because it's legal and that was the policy and the position for a long time so uh, a book came out called throw them all out but we also partnered with 60 minutes where they had some very interesting confrontations uh, with elected officials based on the research in the book that's right and the one we'll play right now is Steve Croft questioning Nancy Pelosi about some access she got to an IPO I wanted to ask you why you and your husband back in March of 2008 um, accepted and participated in a very large IPO deal from Visa. At a time there was major uh, legislation affecting their credit card companies making its way through the, um, through the house. And what? did you consider that to be a conflict of interest? I don't know what your point is of your question. Is there some point that you want to make with that? Well, I, I guess what I'm asking is, do you think it's all right for uh, a speaker, 
to accept uh, a very preferential and favorable uh, stock deal. Well, we did. You participated in the IPO. Well, I have many investments. And at the time, you were Speaker of the House. You don't think it was a conflict of interest or had the appearance of a conflict of interest? It only has the appearance if you decide that you're going to have elaborate on a false premise. But it's not true, and that's that. I don't understand what part's not true. Yes, sir. Um, That that I would act upon an investment. It's not true because Nancy says it's not true. But she did actually participate in the investment. She had access to a thing with Visa that nobody else had access to. That's exactly right. It's an initial public offering of stock and IPO. And these are great deals if you can get them on big companies like Visa because you buy the shares at, say, $5 a share before it goes public. It goes public and it can increase sometimes 20 times in value. In the case of uh, Visa, she doubled her money in a single day. And she got that access to the stock, which is highly unusual, it usually goes to company insiders. She got that access just as there was legislation sitting on her desk to be considered in the House that would be damaging to Visa. And she saw no conflict between those events. I, I don't understand the premise of your question. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, by the way, is a, a great comment to give anytime, anytime you're in trouble. It doesn't matter whether it's friends, kids, spouse, whatever, your boss. I don't understand the premise of your question. Yeah, one of the common themes that continue the rat metaphor is like when you turn on the lights, like the rats or the cockroaches, they're going to scurry around. And so one of the things you'll hear today as this podcast is we explore the way that congressional corruptions evolved is the reactions of members of Congress when they are confronted by Steve Croft or somebody else. And they have to mention and kind of own up to some of the things they did, including what happened in the next book you did, which is about so members of Congress paying themselves by trading on insider knowledge, which is what Nancy Pelosi did. The next book you did called Extortion focused on other ways that members of Congress benefit financially from their office. That's exactly right. And uh, this, again, shows the direct method that so much corruption was engaged in at the time, which is I'm going to have a political action committee and I'm going to raise money. It's supposed to go to electing other members. I'm supposed to donate that money to other campaigns or I'm supposed to use it for my own reelection. But they ended up using it for things like trips to Scotland or to pay for their babysitter or to pay for dinner out. Some people went to Super Bowl or World Series. They bought tickets using this money. And one of the crazy things that we did, in this, so these campaign donations, people take campaign donations all the time, but in extortion for the first time, we actually published the lists from both Republican congressional committees and Democrat congressional committees where we showed how much money members of Congress are expected to raise. Right. Right. And one of the cool or kind of not cool things is They have to raise different monies based on which committees they're on. Why is that? Uh, Because your ability to extract money from industries reflects the power of the committee. So if you're on the budget committee, you're on the financial services committee, Wall Street's got a lot of money. They're really scared what you might do. So you have an opportunity to grab a lot of money. Uh, One of the things that really disgusted me in this whole uh, uh, project is they have price tags. It's like a menu. So you want to sit on the budget committee? That's a very powerful committee. You've got to raise half a million dollars for the party every term or you're not we're not going to let you sit on that committee the veterans affairs committee was considered a c committee because apparently you can't extract extract a lot of money from veterans uh therefore it was not considered a desirable committee that's kind of the mindset and again all of this is very direct corruption it's i'm the center of power i have the authority the ability to influence all these things and what i'm going to do is i'm going to directly seize the money for my own personal benefit. And this is the way a lot of corruption used to work. It's becoming less so. It's becoming more 
indirect. We're going to talk about that in a little bit. But when we exposed this, there was outrage, outrage, bipartisan outrage against the political class. And so we partnered once again with 60 Minutes. And so one of the things we said, so people raise all this money for the leadership packs and they spend it incredibly selfishly, including this representative, Rob Andrews, who got in trouble because he took not only himself, but I think some family members on a little golfing junket to Scotland that he paid for with his campaign money. Steve Cross had some questions for him about it. What about this trip to Scotland? I, uh, I followed all the rules met the standards, and there is a matter pending for the House Ethics Committee. Under those rules, my obligation is not to talk about the investigation that's over. We, we talked to the Ethics Committee. They said they have no problem with you talking to us about this. Well, as my understanding of the rules are that when there's a pending matter, I'm supposed to keep it confidential, and so are they. So I'm going to follow those rules. These leadership packs have been described by a lot of people as sort of political slush funds. Agree with that? You know, I, I think we should take a look at having clear rules of what they can and cannot be spent for. I'd be for that. I like how he's going to follow the, those rules, the ethics committee <laughs> rules about what he can talk about. That, that's the only really rules that uh, Representative Andrews is worried yeah, about. Yeah, and and here's the thing: it, the only honest thing in entire his entire answer is I follow the rules because this is the problem with so many of these things, like insider trading. They create rules so that other people have to abide by them, but not themselves. So he's technically right. He didn't violate any rules, but by any normal measure of decency, uh, you should not be using uh, official funds that you control, whether it's in a business or a committee, for some kind of personal benefit. And that's exactly what they were doing. The good news is that Andrews ended up resigning his position because of the expose that we were involved in. So uh, we were quite happy about that. Happy. And uh, he was not the only member of Congress to be exposed in that particular 60 Minutes investigation. Uh, 60 Minutes also partnered with you know GAI and then Crew who's did some research in terms of other aspects of leadership packs. And I think one of the things that they exposed that we also helped contribute to is another way that members of Congress make money off of their leadership packs is by you can loan yourself money. Yeah, no, this is I mean, you got to say this is this is pure genius as far as uh, evil corruption is concerned. So think about this for a second. You're running for Congress and you haven't raised a lot of money. You can loan your own campaign as somebody that we're going to talk about in a minute did, you could loan $200,000 to your campaign and you can charge your own campaign 20, 25% interest uh, and then never repay the loan. So you're basically getting a 20 to 25% return on your investment every year. And that investment is ending up in your pocket courtesy of donors who are giving money to your campaign to reimburse the loan that you personally made. And that's exactly what Representative Grace Napolitano did. She lent her campaign $150,000, charged her campaign 18%, and then proceeded to make over $225,000 for the next decade plus. And Steve Croft asked her some questions about that. You loan money to your campaign and then charge the campaign 18% interest? That is correct. To be able to do a lot of the things that I had to do were not feasible unless I did what I had to do. And so at that point, that was what was recommended. And that's what I went with. I don't think there's anything wrong with loaning your campaign money, but then collecting 18% interest from your campaign. That's what I'm charging would you go out and get a loan and not get charged interest? It's still 18% and $228,000 like in interest. You like the favor 18%. What I do it? like the favor. What, what, what I mean, is, that's what the yeah. mafia gets. It isn't like I've really profited. I still live in the same house. I drive a small car. I am not a billionaire or a millionaire, for that matter. Did your that, campaign contributors know that you were 
paying back a loan, charging the campaign committee 18%? Well, you don't go out and publicize that, but they know that I had a campaign debt. <laughs> That's amazing. I love the part where she said that she really didn't profit, personally profit from it, even though she took in over 200K in interest payments from her own campaign. Well, she's still living in the same house, Peter. Yeah, you know? she's so. still living in the same house. And of course, the frustration there is that this information came out and she actually won re-election. Oh my gosh. Yeah, that's what's frightening. But why are we going through this history? Partly because this shows the kind of insidious nature of the corruption we try to expose, but also to indicate to you how corruption is evolving and changing. So this is the first three or four years of GAI. And what happened? Actually, some good things happened, not perfect, but good things. Insider trading, they passed something called the Stock Act, uh, which actually made it illegal for members of Congress to engage in insider trading. Now, there's a question of enforcement and how the law is written. But and the, it was gutted. And it was gutted, yes, in, in, in terms of uh, uh, some of the requirements there. But the point is, it, it, it embarrassed a lot of people. You actually had a couple of uh, uh, individuals. There was a Republican uh, ranking member of the uh, House Financial Services Committee. I'm trying to remember his name, uh, who uh, from Alabama, mm-hmm. uh, who uh, did not win re-election as a result. Uh, but the point is, is it had very real consequences. So what happened is... Some of that continues to go on. Insider trading is still an issue, still a problem, but a lot more people paying attention to it now. You Absolutely. See it the I mean, they, people are actively going over the congressional financial reports all the time looking for any transaction that's occurred. That's right. There's been great reporting on Pelosi and, and, and some Republicans as well who, uh, with the uh, uh, COVID and uh, the crisis we've been going through, people that were trading pharma stocks. So people are monitoring that and paying attention, but it started to evolve. And what we noticed at GAI is that they were, they were now starting to offshore their corruption, Mm -hmm. which means rather than like Congressman woman Napolitano taking the direct money or Pelosi doing the direct stock trades, they started coming up with creative ways uh, to engage in this corruption. And Part of the offshoring corruption involved the Clintons. Well, I think so. Extortion came out in late 2013, and then in 2014, we said, "Okay, what should we look at now?" And I think you had the observation: "Wait a minute, we've got uh, we had a Secretary of State in Hillary Clinton whose husband was a former president, and they had this Clinton Foundation, which could receive and did receive donations in six and seven figure ranges from anyone, including foreign governments and potentially hostile people. So you had the idea, hey, let's start taking a look at this nexus of people that donated the Clinton Foundation, that paid for speeches for Bill Clinton, and who may or may not have business before the United States government and are thus dealing with Secretary of State Hillary Clinton. And that's what the book became Clinton Cash. And so as that research unfolded and people started paying more attention, then Bill Clinton said, hey, wait a minute now, because as Hillary's beginning to run for president, now you have not just the Secretary of State, but potentially a president. Will you continue to take money from foreign entities? And Bill had a very simple answer. Will you continue to give speeches? Oh, yeah. I, I got to pay our bills. I also <laughs> give a lot of it to the foundation every year. Yeah, he's got to pay his bills. Uh, this is an example of, you know, we were talking earlier about the adaptability of rats. This is the rat being thrown in the water and learning to swim and learning to tread water for three days until they could find dry land. And for the Clintons, the dry land was the Clinton Foundation because this is a charity, right? Who's going to object to raising money for a charity? Uh, now, when you look into where where the charity spending its money and what it's doing, it raises all kinds of questions. But you also have the speaking fees. And Bill presents this as, well, this is just me sort of making a living. But one of the things we discovered is that Bill's speaking fees would rise and fall, particularly from foreign entities, 
based on whether Hillary Clinton was in power. It's absolutely true. And that we raised that issue, plus the issue of people that got favors from the State Department while they were also big time Clinton Foundation donors. And that's the main reporting that was in. Clinton cashed the book. And just as you did with throw the ball out and raising the specter of like, hey, cr- let's create this film, this lens by which we view these things. Let's just be aware that there's this specter of possibility. Uh, that's what happened with the Clinton Foundation. ABC News, Washington Post, New York Times, Bloomberg, all did independent reporting based on the reporting that was done in Clinton Cash. They all verified it and validated it. And this next clip, I honestly forgot this occurred, but just to show you the impact that the government accountability suit and the reporting that you've done has had, this was a question in the presidential debate in October of 2016. During your 2009 Senate confirmation hearing, you promised to avoid even the appearance of a conflict of interest with your dealing with the Clinton Foundation while you were Secretary of State. But emails show the donors got special access to you. Those seeking grants for Haiti relief were considered separately from non-donors, and some of those donors got contract, government contracts, taxpayer money. Can you really say that you kept your pledge to that Senate committee, and why isn't what happened and what went on between you and the Clinton Foundation, why isn't it what Mr. Trump calls pay to play? Well, everything I did as Secretary of State was in furtherance of... uh Uh, our country's interests and our values. The State Department has said that. I think that's been proven. But I am happy. In fact, I am thrilled to talk about the Clinton Foundation because it is a world-renowned charity. And I am so proud of the work that it does. You know, I could talk for the rest of the debate. I know I don't have the time to do that. But just briefly, uh, the Clinton Foundation made it possible for 11 million people around the world with HIV AIDS to afford treatment. And that's about half of all the people in the world who are getting treatment. In partnership with the American uh, Health Association, we have made environments and schools healthier for kids, including healthier Respectfully, this is is an open discussion. Well, it is an open discussion. I understand. And the specific question went to pay for play. Do you want to talk about that? But there is no evidence, but there is a lot of evidence about the very good work and the high rankings that the Clinton Foundation It's a criminal enterprise. There you yeah, go. Yeah, there you go. And I, I appreciate when when uh, Hillary Clinton was asked about this, she said, well, the State Department has said her spokesman has said that I'm furthering our national interests. So uh, that clears it up. There's a couple of things going on here in terms of what the Clintons did. One is they're offshoring their corruption. They're creating this entity or this other vehicle, which is the charity. And of course, the speaking that Bill's doing. So it's not as crude as I'm going to directly take the money. You're, you're sort of creating this intermediary. But the other thing's happening is you're globalizing it. Yeah. Because this is what the Clintons started, and you're seeing it now with the Bidens and people like Mitch McConnell and others, is it's no longer a question of taking money or special favors from somebody in your district or somebody in your state or somebody even in the United States. A lot of the money flowing to the Clinton Foundation actually was coming from overseas. Uh, from places like Kazakhstan and China and Russia, very corrupt political uh, cultures. And look what happened when Hillary lost the race in 2016. What happened to donations at the Clinton Foundation? Oh, they absolutely plummeted. It's yeah. gone that uh, 60% and 80% drop. It's in fact, last year was the lowest amount of money they've raised in the foundation's history, I believe. That's right. I mean, it's a world-class charity, according to uh, Hillary Clinton. One wonders why the rest of the world doesn't see it that way. Right. Because, yeah, the numbers are down 75% from where they were in 2016. And that's indicative of this kind of pay-to-play influence peddling that the Clintons created 
created and perfected this model. And it's a model that has been, as you noted, adopted by others. I, don't, I think it's absolutely fair to draw a line between the Clinton Foundation's receipt of international money for domestic favors and then look at the Biden business model with Hunter Biden specifically, the business deals he's gotten in Kazakhstan, the business deals he's gotten in China with no, governments knowing they have to deal with a very important person too in terms of the vice president and now president Biden. So you'd absolutely say like this is a lesson that's been learned by others and it potentially raises very troubling questions moving forward. It does. I mean, think about the situation with the Bidens today, or even think about the the Bush Foundation for U.S.-China relations that Neil Bush, mm. uh, son of George H.W. Bush, has set up. Uh, in the case of the Bidens, um, Joe Biden has plausible deniability. At least that's what he's attempting to do. So in other words, we know a couple of things are facts. Number one, Hunter Biden took in a lot of foreign money from China, Ukraine, and elsewhere. We know, number two, that Hunter Biden... Uh, in fact, paid some of his father's bills. So Joe Biden was a beneficiary. But what does Joe Biden say? Joe Biden says, I had nothing to do with this. It's a classic example of offshoring corruption. Same thing involving Neil Bush, uh, who will say that his Bush Center for U.S.-China relations uh, is this above board educational thing. Uh, but actually, it's a mechanism by which a lot of foreign money, primarily from China, uh, has been funneled that is subsidizing and enhancing his lifestyle. And you got to give him credit. It's potentially quite smart because not only is the money much bigger on the international stage, but the transparency requirements are much smaller. So it's a lot easier to get away with. That's right. That's right. So here's the bottom line. Why did we go down memory lane? Uh, first of all, it's just fun to do because it's been a great 10 it's years. It's the 10 anniversary. It's you the know? 10 anniversary. Did you get me a gift, by the way? Yeah, I got you a soda can. <laughs> it's aluminum. That's close enough. Uh -huh. So, you know, here are the challenges going forward. Um, we have to recognize that like rats adaptability to to adjust to their environment, the political class is doing the same thing. And because they are offshoring their corruption, be, because they're going global, it's getting harder to detect because the disclosure requirements have not kept up. So if you look at Joe Biden, he's got to tell you every year, according to federal ethics laws, he's got to tell you if he's got a thousand dollars in GE stock, he's got to give the names of all campaign contributors who give two hundred and fifty dollars or more. But if his adult son, who's actually paying some of his bills, signs a billion and a half dollar private equity deal with the Chinese government, no disclosure requirement. That's offshoring and globalism, uh, global uh, uh, corruption uh, at its finest. And of course, the deals done overseas, if you're doing deals with oligarchs in Russia or in China or elsewhere, they don't have disclosure requirements. This isn't like General Electric in the United States that has to give a detailed accounting to the SEC of how they're spending their money. No, it's... Um I think it's very interesting to see that over the last 10 years, the impact that the reporting that you've done, the Government Accountability Institute, our organization, the impact we've been able to have. And then I think, honestly, the fact that the last book did as well as it did is a testament to the trust uh, and the credibility that you've built up because, like, look, you do go after both sides. I think you try to tell hard and honest truths. It's complicated stuff. I mean, it is. You, you write, we have a team of people that pour over shipping records and go yep. through tax filings and all this. I mean, it's a lot of work. And so that's one of the reasons why the media coverage tends to not be 
as prevalent because their business model has changed. It's honestly one of the reasons why we were created because we wanted to say, hey, look, we will be here specifically for in-depth, detailed, nasty, mucky investigative reporting. And so it's interesting that your profile has grown as much as it has over the last decade because looking back at your first media appearances, you certainly have not. You've lost like 30 pounds. Bro. I can't believe <laughs> they let you be on it's TV. It's because I have like to that. work so hard to keep <laughs> the doors open here. That's how I've lost all that weight. But in all seriousness, you're right. We have a great team. That's the key. It's all about research. The biggest frustration that we have around here is as these clips show, uh, we were getting interactions with 60 Minutes, with CBS News, with ABC News, with the New York Times and the Washington Post. That has all drifted away, and it's drifted away in part because we have done our job so well. Um, The effect that Clinton Cash had on the national conversation was enormous. The effect that the Hunter Biden, Biden scandals have had is now part of the national conversation is a testament to the GAI team and the great work that we do. It's also a testament to the adaptability of the political class to find ways to survive when you shine the light on them. They're looking for ways to avoid direct detection. But you know what? We're not going to let them get away with it. Yeah. Here's the 10 more years. Thanks to everybody that listens to the podcast that's donated to the organization. It's helped make us a thing that we have been for the last decade. And we just ask for your continued and are grateful for your continued support. That's right. And if you want to hear other podcasts, please go to thedrilldown.com or you can find us where fine podcasts are everywhere. Thank you very much for joining us.